Welcome back. I'm Max Bergman, director of the Stewart Center in Europe-Russia Eurasia program at CSIS. And I'm Maria Snigovaya, senior fellow for Russia and Eurasia. And you're listening to Russian Roulette, a podcast discussing all things Russia and Eurasia from the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Russian Roulette. I'm Max Bergman, director of the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program in the Stewart Center here at CSIS. And as usual, I'm joined by my colleague, Maria Snegovaya, our senior fellow for Russia and Eurasia. Thanks for being here, Maria. Actually, you're not here. You're in Europe, but th- thanks for being with us. And also, we're joined by our frequent contributor to the show, Michael Kimmage, also one of our senior associate non-resident fellows and professor of history at Catholic University. Today, we'll be discussing all things Ukraine, as Maria is currently calling in from Warsaw, Poland, after a trip to Kiev. Uh, we'll be hearing about Maria's time on the ground and how everything she saw and heard fits into ongoing narratives surrounding the current stage of the war. So let's jump right into it, Maria, uh, sort of trip report. How was your visit to Kyiv? What were your your big takeaways? Yeah, thanks a lot, uh, Max. Uh, was really eventful. Uh, deeply grateful for uh, Ukrainians for letting me in. Uh, first of all, even to get to Kiev uh, is actually quite uh, eventful, since uh, obviously there's no uh, direct uh, planes. I mean, there's actually direct missiles flying directly from Russia, but uh, nobody wants to get hit. In order to get there, you have to change two or three trains um, from Warsaw all the way to Kiev, uh, and it takes about 16 hours uh, one way. Uh, so it's actually quite an exhausting trip, and many, uh, many, many people uh, have to uh, take it now. Second, uh, the interesting thing about Kiev is you, you wouldn't know, essentially. If you did not know uh, that there is a war, you wouldn't have immediately guessed this. And this is not just me, that m- many people are pointing this out. The only two things that jumped at me at first, first of all, to me, Kiev looks emptier than I remember it back from 2016. And uh, certainly you see a lot of men uh, in uniforms. And then, of course, you know that what's happening. But other than that, the city uh, is still full of cafeterias, restaurants, the food is amazing, I have to mention. It's just amazing how much better it is than it is in the United States, even in the country uh, in the war. And also, Ukrainians are laughing that uh, it's a country at war, and yet uh, you are offered like three different types of milk uh, in the cafeteria, essentially. People, um, you know, having fun, especially the younger uh, uh, generations. So the life continues. And yet... Just after a little bit, having spoken to some of the people, you see how kind of fragile that so-called quote-unquote normalcy is. Because uh, even uh, within in brief interactions with me, people would, for example, suddenly start, start crying. Over 70% of Ukrainians at this point have uh, a relative or know of an acquaintance uh, who has been hurt or even died uh, in this war. Everybody... Uh, really, once they start talking about the situation, they, they really obviously uh, feel it, it gets extremely emotional. And it's only really a matter of time, you know, of, I mean, I'm actually quite concerned when it comes to the uh, psychological cost and all this is all having on uh, uh, Ukrainians. Another um, perhaps uh, interesting observation 
is also apart from uh, this uh, fragile normalcy that by the way is also the legacy of the western uh, funding uh, the ukrainian gdp is now at least partly maintained through uh, the grants that are provided by uh, by the west and that certainly shows in the quality of everything you don't have any you know rationing at least in kiev uh, people who live next to the front line certainly say that uh, this is in a lot of ways unique to kiev uh, once you're closer to the front line you certainly get to experience much more of the war uh, than it is here But also what is remarkable, uh, what was remarkable about my Ukrainian friends and interlocutors is this willingness to sustain whatever it takes, whatever, uh, you know, going to come next, uh, because they understand partly they have no other choice. Uh, because us, obviously uh, the Russian army shows no uh, signs of uh, shows no pity. There's a lot of crimes of humanity committed by the Russians and multiple genocidal um, reference in a statement made by the uh, by the Russian officials and everybody in Ukraine, those people who I spoke to understand that uh, there's really no option to surrender or even to negotiate uh, with Putin. And of course, they're also extremely united in this spirit, uh, de- determination to fight uh, whatever it takes with or without the Western support. But of course, everybody hopes that uh, the support continues. Uh, so that's certainly uh, the other thing that jumped at me. And of course, last but not the least, uh, while I mentioned the normalcy and its fragility, the perceived normalcy, and it's, it actually was very fragile. Uh, the second day that I was there, uh, Russia restarted uh, the bombings of uh, Kiev uh, in particular. There was actually quite a long delay in those bombings and everybody was waiting for them to come. And I remember one of my interlocutors noticed on Thursday that it started to snow. So it's gotten colder, so you can now expect uh, the bombings to resume. And it was weird, like there was almost a sense of relief once they restarted, because at least, as I've been told, we now understand what the Russians are after, right? Because they've been accumulating a lot of uh, missiles, a lot of drones uh, for a couple of months, and now they restarted those because uh, just as before, they're waiting for colder time to come in order to attack uh, Ukrainian critical infrastructure, to undermine people's morale and to leave them without heat uh, during the colder season. And so I happened to be there during the time of what allegedly is the largest drones attack uh, since the start of the war. Uh, Russia sent 75 drones, but uh, the Ukrainian army is really great. They hit most of them. And uh, uh, so I spent some of this time in the shelter during the night. And I unfortunately couldn't hear much, but my Ukrainian colleagues, I got several text messages asking the next day congratulating me on my first drone <laughs> uh, attack, but I couldn't even participate because I, I really barely heard anything. Having said that, already the next day there was another siren and then the next night, night yet another one. I can just report how stressful and anxiety-provoking that is. Obviously for me it's new and uh, many... Um, my Ukrainian friends mentioned they don't even bother going to shelter anymore because, you know, what comes, it comes. And then the Ukrainian missile defense is not much better. So hopefully it's not it's not actually as dangerous. But it's certainly extremely anxiety provoking and literally nobody can uh, rest at night once those uh, restart. This is certainly part of the Russian calculus uh, to just uh, leave people constantly under this emotional distress, which unfortunately accumulates. But overall, I just have to say, I have to express extreme admiration by um, uh, Ukrainians. Certainly their stamina, their resilience, their courage is absolutely, absolutely remarkable. And uh, the app, the signal app that actually warns uh, everybody about the, the starting the start of the attack. At the end, when the attacks end, it says 
may the force be with you. And all I can wish to Ukraine is may the, the force be with it. Let me ask you, you know, there's been a lot of talk here about the counteroffensive, which I think we can classify as not having succeeded, uh, whether you want to call it a failure or not. But it, it didn't succeed in kind of the objectives that uh, the Ukrainians set out at the beginning of it. There's uh, a question, I think, of, of Ukrainian morale and whether it, how, how has Ukrainian morale been hit. So I'm curious for your take on that. And then whether you sensed any appetite within Kyiv and within Ukraine for sitting down at negotiations. Now, we can get into the question of, and I think we will in this conversation when I bring Michael in, but is there any Russian appetite to negotiate? You know, if the Ukrainians were sort of, you know, offered a peace deal tomorrow by the Russians, it, it, would they jump at that? It doesn't seem as that that uh, is the case, but I'm curious for your, what you sort of observed be, being there on the ground in Kiev. Well, I have to say that certainly my sample of the people that I met is biased, obviously, right? I met like 12, 15 people uh, during this trip. But certainly, of course, everybody I spoke to have has zero confidence, zero trust in Russia. And there is this definite sense, as I mentioned, of continue, the, 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 no matter what, because for Ukrainians, it feels extremely existential. Russians have repeatedly promised to erase Ukraine, Ukraine from the surface of all Ukrainians or the Nazis, as the, as the Russian propaganda goes, uh, from, you know, just to kill them. So for people, at least those I spoke to, it's really not an option. Uh, they also point out that they really, there's certainly a lot of hope that the West will continue. It, there's the support uh, for Ukraine. There's a lot of understanding that uh, the West is doing a lot. But also, um, one of the point, points made was, but what if there was there were peace talks? Like, who could trust that Russia would start stop here? Right? Everybody already had already had experience with 2014, the Minsk agreements. Obviously, uh, they did not to end up delivering anything, Russia actually pushed forward even further. Um, any any peace talks, any uh, temporary uh, freezing of the conflict would only, as the assumption goes, uh, give more time for Putin to rebuild the army, only to push forward uh, to what may become even larger than Ukraine, but much more consequential, uh, consequential for the West uh, more broadly. So those people I spoke to, they were also pointing out that it's no longer about Ukraine. It's really about uh, the West, the, the Western order more broadly. So certainly I did not feel the um, any confidence that it makes sense to negotiate given the situation. There is, however, certainly, I wouldn't call it a fatigue, but um, the sense of the war, you know, becoming this very difficult duty that one has to pursue, but it's obviously not anybody's choice and everybody also uh, understands that this is the even the psychological tool among my interlocutors that it takes certainly has its limits well luckily the limit hasn't been uh, hit yet great well maria thank you for for that that trip report michael i want to bring you in maybe we can sort of take stock of where we are in this war now we're the end of november uh of uh, 2023 this year I, I think if I were in the Kremlin, I would be 
you know, very thankful that the war has not gone worse for me and that, you know, I'm still in power, that um, that my situation has sort of stabilized in the sense of, you know, if there was the Prigozhin mutiny, March on Moscow, uh, the summer, uh, the beginning of the year, Russia went on the offensive, did not go well. And then the Ukrainian counteroffensive, I think there was real Russian trepidation that that was going to go, that that might have gone much worse. So now if I were in the Kremlin, I would be saying, well, let's just sit tight hold on, you know, we don't need to take any more territory. But that doesn't seem like what Russia's plan or objectives are. And if I were Russia, I'd be like, let's negotiate a peace. You know, there'd be Western pressure on Ukraine. We're fine with where the lines are. This is totally fine. And then we can look reasonable and get out from under this disastrous war. But that's not what they're doing, right, Michael? I mean, they're, I mean, what is the kind of Russian objective here? And I, it sort of makes the, the West putting pressure on Ukraine to negotiate negotiate with whom right now? So anyway, that's, that's, that's sort of uh, not really a question, but uh, how, where do you think things are? And what is, what is the Kremlin's plan a- appear to be going into 2024? Well, Russia is and remains <clears throat> a black box when it comes to really good evidence on these questions. It's sort of harder and harder in some ways to infer what the plans are and what the thinking is. I mean, I think we can go back in time and say that we have a pretty decent understanding of February 2022, what the motives were and what the plan of action was, what the expectations were, they didn't accord with uh, with reality. But it's 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 not easy to say, and it's of course difficult within that information blackout to say how honest the conversation is in Moscow. If there were an honest conversation, I think it would have to address something that's front and center in your question, which is that Russia, since the summer of 2022, and since the taking of Mariupol. Uh, has not really had uh, a significant advance. Yes, they took Bakhmut, a city of 70,000 of questionable strategic value at enormous cost, uh, but Bakhmut has changed nothing on the battlefield. And certainly, and this is, it's great to get everything that Maria says about Ukrainian morale and the kind of political situation there. And to factor that in, uh, in no sense is Ukraine on the verge of yielding or backing down, uh, or is there some kind of fragmentation of morale Uh, in Ukraine. And so an honest conversation in Russia would have to confront the fact that the politics of the war have just not gone Russia's way from the start of the war. And they're very far from being able to take, let's say, Odessa or Kharkiv, not to mention uh, Kiev, which are the things that could actually change the kind of larger dynamic uh, of the war. So there uh, it is, you know, from Putin's vantage point, a very bleak situation. Uh, Again, I'm not sure if things are presented to him in that light or if he would psychologically accept them if that were uh, the case. And that's a kind of built in reality. But let's imagine, Max, that you and I are sort of spin doctors working in the Kremlin, whose job it is to make Putin feel good about his war. I think this is what we would feed him at the moment. And I think a lot of it would be about things that are not happening on the territory uh, of Ukraine. Uh, I think you would emphasize that with the Israel-Hamas war, there's been a big denting uh, in the kind of moral uh, geopolitical credibility of uh, the West, that Europe and the U.S. have signed on to things in Israel that they've been criticizing Russia for doing in Ukraine. You know, I'm not saying that this is the objective truth of the situation, but could it be pre- presented as such, which is a big step forward for Russia in terms of its status internationally. So the last three months have been uh, a kind of good period in uh, that regard. And, and so in that sense, Russia can kind of continue building on the network of relationships it has in the global south, keep its economy running 
uh, you know, sort of seek forms of influence and leverage uh, globally, and that that's not going particularly badly, and that they, that may matter over time in the war in Ukraine. But I think that the easiest spin to put on the war from a Russian side, if this is what you wish to do, is to point to the election in Slovakia, point to the election in Holland, uh, point to the U.S. House of Representatives, you know, point to the fact that, you know, the AFD is polling between 20 and 22 percent in some measurements of German public opinion. And just to say the handwriting is on the wall. The exhaustion is starting to kick in. It's harder and harder to muster economic and military support for Ukraine. Uh, the center is not quite holding uh, in the Western alliance behind Ukraine. Uh, and this, I think, would really be spin that this trend is going to kind of continue and widen dramatically, obviously, the U.S. entering uh, an election year. So there's not a lot that's going well for Russia. I can't think of much, really, or maybe not anything. But you could imagine in Moscow that there are certain things to hope for uh, and that in the mentality of kind of wartime leadership, when people often clutch at straws, that that's probably the conversation or that may be the conversation in the halls of power. So it's um, it's an odd setup. It's a kind of contradictory setup, bleak on its surface, bleak, I would suggest, uh, in reality, and yet you can find context for the war uh, in which Russia is not doing so badly. Yeah, to sort of paraphrase Tom Friedman during the Iraq war, you know, every six months, give it six more months, give it six more months, maybe things will turn in our direction. I mean, to some degree, things do seem to somewhat be turning in Russia's direction, at least in their defense industrial production increasing. Uh, they've gone through the oil price cap. Their economy seems to be having stabilized, and and now we'll see what happens in the House. I think the, the irony, though, that you're pointing to is that those that are advocates of a negotiated settlement should want to pass Ukraine assistance, because if you don't pass Ukraine assistance, then Russia has that hope of, well, six more months, we can win this war, and gives incentives to them to, to keep on fighting. I mean, Maria curious to react to anything Michael said. I'm curious whether there was any Ukrainian reaction to what was happening in Europe, or at least that you picked up on, or more specifically, the you know issues that we're having in Congress that you know are still unclear how they're going to be resolved in terms of Ukraine security assistance. I certainly agree with a lot what Michael has said. And uh, I, when it comes to the U.S. situation, I'm, I was more there. This is where many have expected me to provide some encouraging news and unfortunately <laughs> it was much harder uh, for me to do uh the sense was as i said whatever it have takes like they certainly hope that they will not be abandoned uh, by the western allies or even betrayed uh, I'd, I'd put it this way but even without the western assistance most of my colleagues i spoke to had this feeling that we'll have to keep fighting whatever it takes. One particularly, I'd say, heartbreaking line of one of the uh, people I spoke to, uh, um, a prominent, actually, well-achieved woman who said, well, we, we're quite clear now. We understand very well that our lives have been destroyed at this point. But at least we hope that we, uh, by our resilience, by our strength and investment, we can build a better future for our kids. And I thought it was extremely kind of uh, moving um, and partly heartbreaking. We also actually discussed a lot of the um, uh, ways in which uh, sanctions can be improved, made a little bit uh, more efficient. So there's actually a couple of the ideas. Most of them have to do with enforcement of existing sanctions designs. But uh, for the West going more actively after 
the specific companies, specific companies in the West that are violating uh, this current existing sanctions design. Unfortunately, there's more troubling news coming today from Turkey and even, I think, uh, Kyrgyzstan, if I'm not mistaken, where again, the import of certain Western goods has suspiciously increased, which again, uh, potentially may be an indication of some smuggling going and one of the ideas has been perhaps uh, do some criminal charges, implement some criminal charges or for, against a certain uh, the individuals, you know, actively engaged in violating all those sanctions. And that would have served a really good example in the West, potentially could serve a good example for others. So far, it hasn't been done. And that's one of the reasons why um, perhaps uh, the sanctions are not working as well. Another idea was to maybe... Um, try and use financial um, enforcement mechanisms, since banks have very good enforcement mechanisms, to make them apply, for example, uh, towards this uh, oil sales, suspicious oil sales that go above the, uh, the oil price threshold. At this point, as we know, unfortunately, it's almost, uh, according to some accounts, uh, almost 99% of Russian maritime uh, oil shipments uh, are being, uh, the oil has that ship this way is being sold uh, increasingly above the oil price cap. So maybe uh, there are ways to create those enforcement mechanisms uh, more effective. So this is what has been discussed. And certainly uh, there are a lot of concerns. But as I mentioned before, uh, I got a sense that, uh, you know, the West is extremely helpful. We're very grateful. We hope there's understanding that it's not just uh, for our own sake that we are fighting this war. It's existential for us, but it's also extremely important for the West not to lose this war because it's highly consequential for the existence of NATO and the liberal national order. But whatever happens, we have no other choice but keep fighting because honestly, if we don't fight, we don't exist, essentially. Michael, I'm curious now how Ukraine kind of defines its sort of theory of victory, or to put it sort of a different way, what's the theory of Russian defeat? You know, I think there was a lot of hope being put on the counteroffensive. Now, um, I think as Maria notes, there's now a lot of acceptance that we're probably going to be, that, that Ukraine will be in a long, longer war. But I think the challenge is going to be articulating to the West, to the U.S. and European publics of what's the theory of victory so that if we're going to outlay tens of billions of, of U.S. taxpayer dollars, like wh how that will, um, to, to what end? And I think there's good answers here, but I'm, you know, I'm not sure there's a good sort of flashy answer on the Ukrainian part of, well, you just give us money and then we'll be able to march our troops further south. So I'm curious what you think the kind of theory of, of victory slash Russian defeat looks like now. Yeah, no, I think it's a great question. Let's just go back a little bit into the past to get a kind of fuller feeling for the for the question itself. I mean, I think Zelensky understood uh, that what the West needed in the first six months of the war was proof of Ukrainian resilience, which had not been taken for granted before the war, uh, and proof of Ukrainian military excellence. Uh, and it was not sufficient just to hold off Russia uh, in that regard, but in this sense, the kind of Kharkiv campaign uh, of September and October 2022, where Ukraine took back huge amounts of Russian territory, was integral uh, to the story that Zelensky felt he needed to tell, uh, and probably that was uh, correct. I do think that that changed the calculus in Berlin, London, Paris, Washington, and a few other places, and a lot of the military aid that we saw in the last year uh, did have its foundation uh, in um, a kind of major military push on Ukraine's part in the beginning of the war, uh, and all kinds of very tangible uh, successes. 
I think that Zelensky faces the challenge now, and, and for for a politician who's as media savvy as Zelensky is, I'm sure he understands this a uh, hundred times better than I do. But I think he faces the challenge now of pivoting to a different kind of war. Uh, if you can't produce the Kharkiv-style victory, and that's not something that a leader of Ukraine can just pull like a rabbit out of a hat, it was unique to those circumstances and at that particular moment. If you can't generate that, you have to figure out other ways of telling the story uh, of the war, which is exactly what you're asking about. I think that the narrative of resilience and Maria's comments about her recent trip to, to Kiev underscore this, the narrative of, of, of resilience is still, for Western audiences, a very moving story to hear. Uh, and is one that will generate support. When you think that this in wintertime uh, was the biggest drone attack uh, since the start of the war, and you think of the humanitarian suffering that that's causing, you think of the uh, the mother that Maria is describing who says that her life has been sort of devastated, uh, but she'll keep on for the sake of the next generation. All of that is a story that still needs to be very much told, you know, sort of generated broadcast that can be done by Zelensky and, uh, and his government can be done by other entities. Uh, and that's one part of the answer about the moral uh, necessity of the war. I do think that it's useful without trying to scare people of reinforcing what the stakes are if defeat would come our way uh, in Ukraine. Uh, what do it mean for Ukraine, of course, first and foremost, but for Europe and uh, for the international order for the United States, if there would be something of a major setback, if Russia would really start to advance uh, militarily. I don't think that you want to go too far down that road because you don't want to suggest that it's happening or kind of um, you know, become defeatist, uh, but uh, to use that to sort of remind people why this is such an important conflict is pivotal. Uh, and, you know, I think that uh, the structures of patience have to be built up however they can, whether the patience means continued economic support to Ukraine, whether it means continued uh, military support to Ukraine. This is a conversation that CSIS has been having now for over a year, uh, for many, many months about containment and about the Cold War. But I think we can go back to the first 10 years of the Cold War, when victory was not in sight, when it was also quite bleak and quite grim and quite difficult in Korea uh, and elsewhere, uh, and you really just couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel. We can go back to those 10 years and think about how support was sustained how there was a still a sense of strategic purpose and how it was all, you know, how it all worked, uh, because it did work for those 10 years and longer for those uh, for those 10 years. So I think we need to revisit conflicts. We always somehow go back to World War II, First World War, these kinds of conflicts. We should go back to the early Cold War uh, and think about what it means to be uh, part of something that's somewhat indeterminate. And we continue to live in the nuclear age. We can't erase that fact. And in the nuclear age, there's not going to be 100 percent victory over your adversaries. It's not in the cards. Uh, even if Russia would start to perform a lot more badly than they've done uh, in the last year and a half, you're just not going to be able to erase them from the equation and sort of knock them from uh, the playing field. So we need to remind ourselves also of that strategic reality, which was the strategic reality of the entire Cold War. So if we can get it just right, that kind of combination of resilience, moral purpose, and realistic expectations uh, will be fine. It's not an easy needle uh, to thread. It's going to be Zelensky's job, and I think maybe this is a subject for a different conversation, Maria and Max, but it's going to be Joe Biden's job uh, as well. I don't feel like I've gotten from the White House enough messages since the quote-unquote failure or lack of success of the counteroffensive. I haven't gotten enough messages from the White House that uh, I think that the public needs uh, quite a bit more in that regard. I can see how it's a tough task, uh, but uh, utterly essential at this at this particular moment. Yeah, I think just to... to 
pull on the thread of the Cold War histories. I mean, superpowers lost a lot of wars during the Cold War, whether it was us, whether it was the Soviets. And in particular, it was always more powerful countries getting engaged in quagmires uh, in places they probably shouldn't be. Uh, Vietnam, Afghanistan, you can go down the list. And I think one of those lessons is that the staying power of, of the country being occupied tends to have a degree of resilience that is not going to be matched by the the invading, conquering power. Um, and and I think that that's one, one clear lesson at least I've taken away. But Michael, here, come in. Let me go back just also for a moment to the black spot, black box that is Russia. That means many different things. It means may mean we don't know quite what their plans are in terms of an augmented war. It may mean that we don't fully understand how popular this war is in Russia. That's possible. Uh, a black box is a black box. But it also probably means that there are a lot of internal problems in Russia that we're not seeing. Uh, there's an article in the New York Times today about Russian mothers who are protesting the length of service uh, of, you know, sort of spouses and family members who are all fighting in uh, in Ukraine. You know, the Prigozhin thing didn't work out. There are lots of reasons for that. But it's still a pretty dramatic episode where you have a major mutiny uh, on the part of your military and they march within 800 miles or kilometers uh, of of Moscow. And Putin has managed to suppress politics in Russia since the start of the war. I think that's fair to say. I don't know if that lasts forever. And let's remind ourselves that there are a lot of internal weaknesses uh, to the Russian uh, to the Russian position. And, you know, we can't bank on them. We can't count on them. You don't want a mirror image with the Russians where they're sort of expecting an election in Europe to kind of bring the whole Western war effort down and to fragment it. You don't want to engage in that kind of thinking. On the other hand, I, I worry a little bit now that we're sort of overemphasizing some of the Russian uh, the Russian strength. Let's just keep a certain healthy uncertainty there uh, in terms of where Russia's going and where it's trending. And they may surprise us, as the Soviet Union did uh, in the mid, mid to late 1980s with, um, you know, a kind of turbulence that the war creates that Putin may find difficult uh, to manage. So, you know, it's a point I would want to emphasize, too, at the moment. Uh, super important points, Michael, thank you. May I also add a couple of extra points? First of all, uh, we tend to think of our Ukrainians' uh, advances in 2023 as having limited success, but there is one area where uh, such success was actually somewhat achieved, which my interlocutors asked me to point out, is actually uh, it's much, much harder for Russia now to approach the sea uh, the shoreline. So they actually are forced uh, to stay in the sea and uh, it's harder for them, essentially. Uh, it limits how far they get to send the missiles. They have to send it from the ships. Part of that, uh, essentially, the legacy of the Moscow sinking, of the Moscow ship sinking, sinking but it went beyond that. Uh, it also the effectiveness of the uh, the weapons with further distance range uh, that Ukraine is now possessed, but also their successful actions. That is important also somewhat protects, protects Odessa and it makes the... Um, uh, it's e it makes it more po possible, uh, not just the grain route, but other sea routes to continue in the Black Sea somewhat. And so that is something that's less often mentioned, but certainly is uh, the credit of Ukraine. Having said that, and this is to Michael's point on uh, Russia's uh, next steps, one of the reasons why uh, there weren't as many successes as we've seen uh, back in 2022 is because Russia, unfortunately, is also learning and adjusting. Certainly, they were not prepared uh, to the counteroffensive that Ukraine uh, started uh, last, uh, and so therefore uh, Ukraine was able to achieve a lot of victories last fall. That is no longer the case. And of course, one of the most concerning points that we often flag uh, here at the CSAS is that Russia is now ramping up its production, um, its defense sector, and allegedly it's doing its much 
much faster than the West, right? Because we keep hear- hearing that the delays with artillery supplies for Ukraine. Ukraine, of course, is uh, a lot of problems when it comes to air control. And again, one, do you, how do you expect to conduct a successful counteroffensive with a lack of air superiority, uh, right? The Western uh, military does not do it, but yet uh, we're asking Ukraine to do something that we wouldn't be doing otherwise. Last but not the least, uh, certainly there's also our failure in the West to sell it, uh, to sell this war to the Western constituencies, of course, primarily the Republican constituencies, right? As the war that does not just have nothing to do with them, right? But the war that's important and concerns them. And uh, to that point, I've been told of a recently run poll among the Republicans in the United States where uh, different frames were tested uh, in an effort to uh, decide what works better, essentially, in explaining or in selling this war uh, to these constituencies. So I I bet you will never guess uh, the line that won. (laughs) Evangelical Christians being uh, prosecuted in Donbass by Russians was allegedly one of the most successful lines uh, with uh, um, jobs uh, creation uh, being the third and the second being uh, actually showing that Ukraine spending, Ukraine war spending constitutes only a tiny share of the proportion of the budget. So not the absolute numbers, but the share of the budget is really not as big uh, and actually it worked uh, very well. I think we need more of such pools uh, to be conducted and I think we need to do a better job in explaining uh, to the Western consumers that this is not just some distant war that has nothing to do with them, but this is actually a very existential war, not just for Ukraine, but also for the West in a lot of ways. Yeah, unfortunately, we're at time. I just a quick thought on that. I think one of the things that I, I think would be the case that if if aid uh, stops and it's now pretty clear that the uh, administration is 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 the the drawdown packages that it's giving to Ukraine are about half as much what they were a few months ago. They're now in the $100 million range as opposed to the 200 to 400 to $500 million range earlier in the year. That if aid sort of comes to a trickle and Ukraine runs out of things like air defense munitions that we can no longer resupply because we're not congressionally authorized to and there's no money, then a lot of Ukrainians are going to die uh, because Congress didn't act. And I'm curious if that message really started to resonate with Ukrainian cities being bombarded, infrastructure being hit in a clear, direct line between that and the lack of aid, I think could be pretty powerful. Now, I think Michael's right. The White House hasn't really had a clear message. I think in some ways they were trying to depoliticize Ukraine assistance, but that didn't work. So I think the alternative now is to really make it much more political. And I think they were planning on doing that. And then October 7th in, in, in Gaza happened and the administration and all the focus has, has now been on Israel-Gaza. Now, that may be beneficial to Ukraine. They can slip through the funding in Congress. But this is I don't think this is a polling issue uh, because it still polls pretty well for foreign aid. I think this is really just a, an internal Republican caucus issue, and we shall see how things end up there. But unfortunately, we'll we'll leave it at that. Um, I think we'll, there's a lot more to discuss. And I think the hope is, when I look forward to 2024, that the Russians go on many fruitless uh, offenses that are led by their valiant and brilliant leadership of, of Grasimov and Shoigu uh, that, um, that become really costly for Russia and that ergo Russian arrogance and need to sort of show gains uh, uh, redounds to Ukraine's uh, advantage. But 
we'll have to leave it at there, and then we'll discuss this, I think, more in a future podcast. As usual, if you haven't already subscribed to Russian Roulette, go and give us a positive rating if you're so inclined. Please do. If you're listened all this way, you should give us a positive rating. And also, please don't forget to check out our sister podcast, The Eurofile, and I think it will be of particular interest to uh, the Russian Roulette audience in the next episode because we're going to talk a lot about uh, what's happening at the European level, which has a direct impact on essentially the EU's uh, ability to pass 50 billion for Ukraine, which then uh, leads to questions about not only the Dutch elections, the Hungarians are now holding Europe hostage, as well as the crazy German constitutional court throwing a, a big spanner in German spending plans, which then could impact EU level spending, which could impact funding for Ukraine. And that's all going to be on the next episode of the Eurofile. So please subscribe to that uh, uh, podcast uh, wherever you get your podcast. And I want to thank you, Maria. Thank you, Michael. And thank you all for joining us. Thanks a lot, Max. Thanks, Max. You've been listening to Russian Roulette. We hope you enjoyed this episode and tune in again soon. Russian Roulette releases new episodes every two weeks on Thursdays and is available wherever you get your podcasts. So please subscribe and share our episodes online. And be sure to check out all the latest analysis by the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program at csis.org.